Please turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans, chapter 5. And I'll read verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man... Sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. The subject of our sermons today is the contrast between Adam and Christ. The entire human race has been constituted as in union with one or the other. We are in union with Adam By birth, we are in union with Christ by faith. And in that union, everything that they accomplished is passed on to us. By our union with Adam by birth, all guilt and condemnation, death is passed on to us by our union with Christ. Righteousness, justification, and life are imputed to us as well. We have four contrasts that we will be looking at. We've only considered the first this morning. In Adam, we have guilt. In Christ, we have righteousness. Before we continue this evening, we notice here in verse 12 that Paul says in the beginning of the verse, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Sin entered into the world. Sin did not exist in the world until it came through Adam. Sin originated with Satan when he fell from heaven, but sin originated, sin entered into this world in which we live through the one man, Adam. Sin is an intruder, it is an invader into God's perfect world. We can ask the question, how did the fall into sin take place? And men distinguish between what is called an internal and an external cause of Adam's fall. The internal cause was his own free will. The external cause was the temptation of Satan. And there are questions and there are mysteries Concerning the fall, questions that cannot be answered. For example, if God made Adam upright and innocent, then how could even the inclination to sin ever arise in his heart? Where did it ever come from? It is a mystery to which we have no real answer at this time except to know that it, take pl- that it took place, Adam desired his own will and his own glory above the will of God and the glory of God. Another question that we could ask is, how could a good and sovereign God permit evil to enter his world? He is holy, wise, and sovereign. He is the God who orders all things after the counsel of his will and nothing takes place apart from his holy will. And so how could it be that the sovereign, wise, and holy God could permit 
an entrance of sin into his world. Another mystery would be that God not only knew that the fall would take place, but he ordained the fall to take place. And yet, while he ordained the fall, he is in no way responsible for it, and he is never the author of any sin. James tells us in chapter 1 in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Someone might ask if God ordained the fall, then how could he hold Adam responsible for his sin? And James really goes on in chapter 1 to answer that question, and he tells us that each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James is telling us that every man, every man, including Adam, is completely responsible for his own sin. So in this great mystery, God ordained the fall, and yet he is no author of any sin, and he remains perfect in his holiness and in his holy character. Peter dealt with this same issue concerning the death of Christ, the worst worst crime ever committed. The death of Christ was ordained by God, and yet man was completely responsible, and Peter charged them accordingly. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, this man, this man Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So there are these mysteries And there are these questions surrounding the fall which we cannot answer at the present time. What do we say concerning these things? We must accept that while God has told us many things in the scriptures, he has not, and he has told us, he has told us everything that we need for our salvation. Yet he has not told us everything that we might like to know. We may go as far as Scripture, but no further, and we must never go into vain imaginations and speculations. We must humble ourselves and recognize that we do not need every question to be answered. And for his good and wise reasons, God has kept some things hidden, at least in this life, and they belong only to him. By faith we realize that there are some things that we cannot comprehend with our finite minds, but those things are perfectly resolved in the infinite mind of God. Though we cannot fully understand why, it is true God ordained the fall into sin. And because of that, some in church history have called the fall into sin a happy fault. The term supposedly comes from the church father named Gregory, and he is said to have referred to the fall as, O happy fault, which found such 
a redeemer. And the idea is that as evil as sin is, if sin did not enter the world, then some of the most glorious attributes of God may never have been displayed. We think of the mercy, the forgiveness, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. If there had been no sin, if there had been no entrance of sin, then how would the love, the mercy, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ ever have been so fully manifested? No greater love could there ever be than the love of Christ upon the cross. Jesus said himself, greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. And John tells us in 1 John 3 and verse 16 that we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. We may think of the wisdom of God in finding a way of salvation for us by sending his beloved son into the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, Christ Jesus has become to us the wisdom from God. What greater wisdom could there ever be than the incarnation of the Son of God into the world to rescue sinners? The divine and human natures united in the one person of Jesus Christ for our salvation. God showed his glory to Moses on the mountain and said, The Lord, the Lord God, gracious, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. How could all the glory of God in both his mercy and justice be fully manifested apart from the entrance of sin? So there are these attributes of God which perhaps would have remained forever hidden and never fully known apart from the sad entrance of sin. We are living in the midst of a world of sin and we see it around us every day. We feel it very deeply in us. We know the horror of it. As terrible as it is, it has become the occasion of the glory of God. Jesus, when he went to the cross, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. And the voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Sin can do its worst, but the God of infinite power, wisdom, and love is able to bring good out of evil and the highest blessing out of misery and the greatest joy out of the deepest sorrow. Samuel Rutherford is reported to have said, had sin not been, there would, there would certainly have been no display of some of the divine attributes they would have been conserved forever in the depths of the adorable God. And Paul tells us here at the end of verse 14 that Adam was a type of him who was to come, a type of Christ. In 
What that means is that when God created Adam, he was looking forward to the far greater glory that would come through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Through the failure and the disobedience and the sin of Adam, he was looking forward to the perfect righteousness and the salvation of his beloved son. This morning we saw the first contrast between Adam and Christ. In Adam, we have guilt. In Christ, we have righteousness. This evening, we come to the second contrast, which is that in Adam, we have pollution. In Christ, we have sanctification. This morning, we dealt with what we call imputation. The imputation of Adam's guilt, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and in imputation, we are speaking of things that are external to us. Things that take place outside of us in the court of heaven above. But tonight, as we deal with pollution and sanctification, now we are dealing with subjective things that take place internally within us. And the question is, how did we become sinners? And why is it that every person born into this world is prone to sin. We speak here of actual sin, sin that arises from the pollution and the corruption of our sinful nature. In theology, it is called original sin. The term original sin can be somewhat misleading because it does not refer to the original or the first sin of Adam, it refers to the sinful nature which is passed on from Adam to all of his descendants, so that we are all born with a sinful nature, and we enter into this world not only with the guilt of Adam's sin imputed to us, as we saw this morning, but we are born into this world with this great power of sin that is within each one of us. Original sin, the fact that each one of us is born with a sinful nature, it is obvious from our experience and from our observation in the world. We see it in even the youngest of children. We do not need to teach young children to be selfish or how to be angry and throw temper tantrums. We do not need to teach them how to lie and steal and hate we do not need to teach them how to rebel against the authority of their parents. They know these things already from their womb because they have original sin. They have the corruption, they have the pollution of the sinful nature that has come, been passed down to us from our father Adam. When he was first made in the garden, he was upright and innocent, the perfect image bearer of God in holiness. He had the physical life of his body and his soul. He also had spiritual life in communion with God, which was sustained by the Holy Spirit. But as soon as he ate from the forbidden tree, he immediately died spiritually, and later he would die physically. He lost all holiness. 
and all communion with God and his entire person came under the power of sin with an inclination toward evil. Before the fall, Adam was made and his soul was filled with holiness. By the fall, he lost all holiness so that his soul became a vacuum without any holiness. And then by the fall, the vacuum of his soul was filled with sin and Satan's power toward every evil thing. This is how tragic the fall was. Adam did not simply stumble and wound himself slightly. Adam plunged himself and his entire human posterity into this terrible corruption of human sin. It is like blood, a disease in the blood that is passed on and flows in every generation from our conception we are born into the world as sinners. We are still the image bearers of God, but we are twisted, mangled, and perverted image bearers. And there is this rebellion within us arising against God from our sinful nature. We might ask the question, well, how deep, how deep has sin gone in us? How extensive is sin? The answer is, it is universal corruption within us. Sometimes it is called total depravity. By total depravity, we do not mean that we are as bad as we possibly could, but we mean that sin has corrupted every faculty of our being, our minds, our wills, and our affections. Sin has affected all of our faculties, like poison being put into the water of a glass. The poison spreads and permeates down through the entire glass of water. So there is this universal corruption in our souls. The extent of sin can be seen if we look at that one verse back in the book of Genesis, chapter 6. For just a moment, in the book of Genesis, and chapter 6, before the flood, and we read here, In Genesis chapter 6, what God saw when he looked down upon the human race in verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. John Murray uses different expressions to show the extent of the sin in this verse he first says that there is sin's intensity in the first ver- in the first phrase that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and then we see the inwardness of sin and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart and then we see the constancy of sin was only evil continually and we see its exclusiveness every thought only evil continually the intensity, the inwardness, the constancy, the exclusiveness, the depth of sin is seen that has come 
from Adam to us. Jesus speaks of our sinful nature in this way. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 20, he says, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds evil thoughts and fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. And we have this corruption from birth, David tells us. In Psalm 51, he traced his sin all the way back to its origin. And this is what he said, behold, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And Psalm 58 in verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb and those who speak lies go astray from birth. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, walking according to the devil's power over us, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And then in chapter 4, he says that we all live by nature in the futility of our minds, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Having become callous, they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Jesus tells us that we are blind by nature. We are in the darkness and we are lost. Our father is the devil and we do the desires of our father. The Bible speaks of us as not knowing where we are going. The Bible speaks of hardness and stubbornness. The Bible says that we are idolaters. We are helpless, ungodly enemies and haters of God. Slaves of sin. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, the mind of the natural man is hostile, is at enmity with God and does not subject himself to the law of God for he is not even able to do so. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14 that the natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them. And we could add to this those long lists of the deeds of the flesh that Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 5. And then we could turn over in our Bibles to that long list of wicked sins at the end of Romans chapter 1. And then we could do the same over in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we could go on and on because the Bible goes on and on. And the Bible paints the worst possible picture of who we are by nature. Romans chapter 7, even the Apostle Paul says, sin dwells in me. And then he cries out, wretched man that I am, who can set me free from the body of this death? This is what original sin has done to all of us. 
in the corrupt nature that we are born with, and surely none of us are able to achieve any favor with God. We are none of us able to merit anything that will accomplish or earn our salvation. We are in this most desperate situation of sin and the darkness of the human soul. All of this inherited from Adam and the corruption that he has passed on to us. The theological phrase that is used is that we are by nature, we are not able to not sin. We are not able to not sin. In Latin, non posse, non pecera. Many would like to think better of themselves, even within the church. They would minimize, they would minimize the effects of sin upon us. And they would say, after hearing the things that we've just heard, that perhaps this is too dark a view of things, and perhaps this is too negative. But the Bible itself paints the darkest imaginable picture with the strongest possible strokes and leaves us with no question as to the power of sin that is deep down into the very depths of our souls. If someone were to ask me, well, do you not think this has gone too far? My answer to that question would be, let us go back and look at the first man who was born into the world. And his name was Cain. And Cain was a murderer. And he murdered his own brother. What does that tell us about the sin passed on from Adam to his posterity? What does that tell us about the future of the human race? What it tells us is that apart from common grace, by which God restrains human sin, apart from common grace, the human race, we would have exterminated ourselves by our own murders a thousand times over. People often ask the question, where did Cain get his wife? That's not the question we should be asking about Cain. The question we should be asking about Cain is how could there be so much sin in that man, that first man born into the world, that he murders his own brother. It is true, and thanks be to God, that we are not as bad as we could be. And we are restrained by, in different ways, by God's common grace. But still, this is who we are by our nature. Augustine called the good works of unbelievers splendid vices. We appreciate the good works of unbelievers in this world and there are many of them and we thank God for them. But the good work of an unbeliever and the good work of a believer are entirely different things. They, mo they may very well look identical on the outside, but on the inside, they are entirely different in the eyes of God. The work, the good work of a Christian is done by faith in Jesus Christ. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, and for the glory of God. And those things are completely absent in the good works of unbelievers. So this is the desperate situation that we are in. Let's turn to the, back to the book of Romans and chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And Paul says in verse 24, he says, wretched man that I am. And he asks the right question. Who, who will set me free from the body of this death? That's the right question. The question is not what shall I do? What shall I do? What can I do to rescue myself from this wretched condition that I am in? The right question is who? Who? Who has power and love and grace? to be able to come and deal with me in this wretched condition that I am by nature. Because it will take great love and it will take power and grace to do this gracious work, to take sinners who are ruined by sin and transform them into what they ought to be, to recover them and to restore them. Who, who will set me free from the body of this death? And Paul answers the question in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is only one person with the love and the power and the grace that can rescue us from our wretched state of original sin. And it is our Lord Jesus Christ. In Adam we have pollution corruption, and uncleanness in Christ now. As we look at him in Christ, in union with Christ, we have sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God in delivering us more and more from our sins and making us more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctification is the inward cleansing and the purifying of our souls and the renewing of our humanity back to the image of God that we have lost. We imagine, we may imagine someone with a very valuable and beautiful painting and they have left the painting in the attic for many years and it has collected much dirt and dust over the years. And then this person runs across and discovers this painting once again. And the painting is too valuable and it is too beautiful to simply throw it away. It must be cleansed. It must be purified. It must be restored. It must be renewed back to what it once was. And that's a picture of what sanctification is. It is the renewal of our humanity, the restoration back into the holiness of the image of God. There are three stages in sanctification, and the very first is at the beginning of the Christian life. In conversion, when we are first saved, God sets us apart as his own to be holy, to be his holy ones, to be his saints. He consecrates us. That is what is called definitive sanctification. The second stage of sanctification 
is what we call progressive sanctification, the lifelong process of our increasing in living more and more into holiness and the image of Christ. Progressive sanctification, it's defined in the Shorter Catechism, that sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. The final stage of sanctification is when we come to the end of life and there are still the remains of sin in every part of us. But when we die, God removes every vestige and every particle of our remaining sin and he perfects us in holiness. And this is what is called glorification. The foundation of our sanctification is regeneration, the new birth, the new heart, that radical change that takes place in the beginning of the Christian life. The ruling power of sin is dethroned from our hearts. We are given a new nature. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. And based upon that work, the progress of sanctification continues now throughout the entire Christian life. This is what Paul is dealing with back in chapter 6 of the book of Romans. If we turn back to chapter 6, he speaks of us in this chapter several times as those who were once before salvation slaves of sin, but now we have become slaves of righteousness. And what I wish for us to see is that all of this work of sanctification comes by our union with Jesus Christ. In Adam we have pollution, but in Christ we have our sanctification by union with him. In Romans chapter 5, Paul spoke of our justification by our union with Christ. Now in Romans chapter 6, he takes up our sanctification still by our union with Christ. Both our justification and our sanctification are by our union with Christ. We see this in chapter 6. We read verse 2. He says, may it never be. How shall we who died? We died to sin. How shall we still live in it? And then he says in verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So Paul here is speaking about the work of sanctification that is within us. In verse 2, he says that we have died to sin's power. At the end of verse 4, he speaks of us walking in newness of life. At the end of verse 6, he says our body of sin has been done away with so that we are no longer slaves to sin. And where has all of this come from? It has all come from Christ. He speaks of our union with him throughout these verses. In verse 4, we have been buried with him, raised with him to newness of life. 
In verse 5, we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Then certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. So this is where the sanctifying power comes from, from our union with our Lord Jesus Christ. The great reason why we must be sanctified is because we are in union with him. Everyone who is in union with him is both justified and sanctified. It is impossible to be in union with Christ without being sanctified because there is always the grace and the power of Jesus that flows down for us in this inward work of cleansing and renewal. After speaking of our justification in verses 15 through 19 that we looked at this morning, then we see what Paul says in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5. He says, And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul is saying here very briefly is that the law cannot sanctify us because the sinful nature that is in us is only aggravated by the law and sin is increased in the unregenerate. The law is good and holy and the law is for the life of the believer, but the law can never sanctify us. The only thing that can sanctify us and make us more holy is the abundant grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And so he goes on in chapter 6 and tells us that we are no longer under law, but we are under the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ for our sanctification. In Adam, we have pollution. In Christ, we have grace and power for our, or for our sanctification. And this is what our confession of faith says in the handout that I've given to you from chapter 13 on sanctification from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. We see in the first paragraph that they begin the first paragraph and they say, they who are united to Christ. This is how they begin the chapter on sanctification. They speak of our union with Christ because all of our sanctification comes from, through our union with Christ. They who are united to Christ will be sanctified. And then they go on and they say, those who are effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them. And then they write through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection are also farther sanctified, really and personally, through the same virtue, the virtue of Christ, the merit of Christ and his death and resurrection. So that the merit of our sanctification is all found, the virtue of it is all found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have our Christian duties in regard to our sanctification. We use the means of grace, and we must do so in sanctification. But the effectual power of our sanctification does not rest in the means of grace 
or in anything from ourselves, but only in the grace and power that comes from our Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit. And the confession continues there in paragraph one and says, by his word and spirit dwelling in them, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. The word and the Holy Spirit continue this work of sanctification. But the Spirit comes from Jesus. Jesus purchased the Spirit for us in his death upon the cross. He intercedes for the Holy Spirit in heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit down upon us. So by the word and by his Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord Jesus, this is how sanctification continues in us. We notice in the beginning of the second paragraph that they write, the sanctification is throughout the whole man. What they mean is every part of our being, body and soul, every one of our faculties, sanctification is taking place. Just as sin entered into all of our faculties in the fall, the mind, the will, the affections, down into the very depths of our being, as we saw from Genesis 6 and verse 5, into every thought and the intentions of the heart. So now, so now, the grace and power of Jesus by the Holy Spirit has entered into the whole man, down into the very depths of our being, in this work of sanctification to cleanse and purify and renew us back into the image of Christ. However far and however deep sin has entered into us to ruin us, so far Christ by the Spirit enters into us to sanctify us and restore us. The work of sanctification is incomplete in this life. They continue in paragraph two, and they write that yet imperfect in this life, there abides still some remnants of corruption in every part, which, are, which when, arises a con, uh, when arises a continual and irreconcilable war. And then they mention from Galatians 5, and verse 17, notice the words there, a continual and irreconcilable war. This is what is taking place in the heart of every Christian. The war between sin and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is in us and the Spirit is against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit and they are in opposition to one another. And so there is this continual warfare that is taking place. Continual day after day, irreconcilable. There is no peace. There is no end to this warfare, to the end of life. It is continual. It is irreconcilable to the end of our life because of this new work of the Holy Spirit that is within us from our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to spend just a couple minutes looking at some verses very briefly as possible to see that our sanctification comes from the Lord Jesus. The first is found in, the sec in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians and chapter 3. 
Our sanctification comes from Jesus Christ by our union with him. In, Adam, in Christ we have sanctification. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 17 and 18. He says, but now, he says, now the Lord, the Lord Jesus is the Spirit. The Lord Jesus carries on his work in us by the Holy Spirit. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord Jesus is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is sanctification. This is our renewal, our transformation into the image of Christ, into the same image of Jesus from one stage of glory to another as we behold his face and glory in the mirror of the gospel. This transformation takes place by the Holy Spirit, as he says at the end of the verse, just as from the Lord, by the Spirit, the Lord, the Spirit, the Lord Jesus, working this transformation in us by his Holy Spirit sent down from heaven to us. In Adam we have corruption and pollution. In Christ we have sanctification transformation, purification. We can look over to chapter 5 and verse 17. Verse 17, he says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new beginning, the beginning of the Christian life. And then he says, The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. These new things must include the grace of sanctification and it all comes by union with Christ. If any man is in Christ, if any man is in union with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, Paul says, By his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We'll turn to the passage that we looked at earlier in Ephesians chapter 4. And we read this passage earlier, Ephesians chapter 4, and beginning in verse 17, Paul says, Therefore I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And then he goes on, we look down to verse 22, he is giving exhortations to a sanctified life. In verse 22 he says, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So he gives us this exhortation here to Pursue sanctification in the Christian life. Where does the power and the strength of this sanctification come to us from? The answer is given in verse 20 and 21. He says, you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. The power that he speaks of here comes from Jesus, the truth that comes from 
from him. And back in the beginning of verse 16, he says, Christ from whom the whole body and the whole body of Christ is being fed from heaven by him. Back in chapter 3, he said we are that Christ dwells in us by faith. And so this is where the strength, the power of this sanctification comes from, from the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll turn to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. In verses 1 through 4, Paul speaks of our union with Christ. In verse 1, he says we have been raised up with him. In verse 3, our life is hidden with him. In verse 4, Christ is our life. We are on earth. Christ is in heaven. At the end of verse 1, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And there he has great power. And we here on earth, we are in union with him as he sits on his throne in heaven. And then in verses 5 through 9 and 10, he tells us of sanctification, that we are to lay aside all of our evil deeds, lay aside the deeds of the old man and the evil practices, and put on the new man and all of his righteousness. In verse 10, we are being renewed according to to the image of the one who created him. Where does this power come from to carry out this work of sanctification? The answer is from Christ in verse 1 and following by our union with him at the right hand of God the Father. There he sits with power for us. There he has grace that he can send down to us to help us that we might live as we should. And then in verse 11, he says, this is a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So this renewal is taking place throughout all the nations of the earth today. From our Lord Jesus Christ, the grace and strength is flowing down so that his people can live according to the gospel and be sanctified and renewed back to the image of God in him. The last phrase there in verse 11, Christ is all. Christ is all that we need for this sanctification. And he is in all with his power and grace by the Holy Spirit. Everything we need is in him. Christ is all and in all. And so we close with a couple of thoughts tonight. The first is what a glorious Savior God has given to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. That he not only justifies us by his righteousness, but he sanctifies us by his word and Holy Spirit. In justification, he deals with the penalty of sin. In sanctification, he deals with the power of sin. Justification is external, outside of ourselves, in the courtroom of heaven above. Sanctification is internal, personal, and cleansing within the souls of each of his people.
Justification gives us an entrance into heaven. Sanctification makes us prepared for it. So in every need and in every way salvation can be viewed, Jesus fulfills every need we have. What a glorious Savior we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so another application, a second application would be that we must always be looking to Jesus for our progress in our sanctification. We have the duties that we must perform in the means of grace. But we cannot look to the means of grace for the strength of our sanctification. It would be easy for us to begin to rest upon outward duties. But we will never find the power in those outward duties themselves. They are only the means, the means by which His grace comes down to us. We must always be looking through the means to the only one who can help us. Christ is the only one who can give us the power of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Our last application tonight is that Christ will have his victory in our sanctification when he brings us into glory. And we find that back in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. In Romans chapter 8, And verse 30. Whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. He brought them into his eternal kingdom. He made them perfect in holiness with all the saints. He glorified them like himself in perfect holiness in heaven. Those whom he justified, he glorified them. Why does he not mention sanctification? Because our sanctification here becomes part of our glorification in the world to come. It is so certain. That's what Paul is saying here. That if we have been justified by faith, then certainly we shall be glorified by faith. And he who began the good work in us will complete it until the day of his return. Christ will have the victory in our sanctification. Our sin will be conquered. And he will have his saints. And he will present his church to himself in all her glory. Without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And his people, every one of them will be glorified with him in his eternal kingdom. He will have the victory in this great work of sanctification. In Adam, we have such great pollution and corruption. How terrible it is. But in Christ, we have this glorious process of his sanctifying work in us that he will bring to its completion and glorify us in the end. Let's pray together. Our Father and gracious God in heaven, O Lord, we thank you and bless you for our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is such a wonderful and glorious Savior, 
for sinners like us. How desperate was our condition. And yet you have come to rescue us, to love us, to save us, and to glorify us in the end. Lord, be pleased to work in us this great work. Sanctify each one of us. Increase our faith. Strengthen us in every way in the Christian life. And may we always be looking to you. And may you give us all things that we need. Thank you, Lord Jesus, now. And we pray that you would watch over us throughout the week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.